So I'm going to carry on the series, This is How I Fight My Battles. They reckon that we have 50,000 thoughts a day. That 95% of those thoughts are actually subconscious. We're not aware of them. They reckon that 70% of those subconscious thoughts that we're not aware of are actually negative. And that 95% of our negative self-talk is repeated every day. Unless, of course, we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The question then is, what would it be like to go through just 24 hours without devaluing yourself? What would it feel like to go through 24 hours where you're not beating yourself up? Where you're not living with a sense of, there's something wrong with me. What would it be like to go through a day where you actually thought there's something amazingly right with me? To have a life that has life in it, that overflows life wherever you go, means that we need to agree with God and we need to believe that there is something amazingly right with us. And to get to the place where those 95% negative thoughts are transformed, there is a fight of faith to agree with God. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about don't be unaware of the schemes of the enemy. That not everything you think comes from you. It's a whole bunch of thoughts that are coming from God, because spirit speaks to spirit. There's a whole bunch of thoughts that are your thoughts, and there's a whole bunch of thoughts where actually you're listening to someone else who wants to tell you something. <coughs> that a lot of these negative thoughts that we live with is not an uh, accurate assessment of who we are, it's actually a voice that comes to accuse. So, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12 and uh, verse 10 tells us that accusation is a scheme, a while, a strategy, a technique, a tactic of the enemy that he actually uses on believers 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Mm. No, there's no other reference to another of his ta- tactics or strategies that gets defined as this is something he does all the time. Yeah. Revelation 12:10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, which we've been celebrating this morning, and the word of their testimony, who accuses them. The accuser of the brothers who has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. So, 
The name Satan actually means to accuse. That's what his name means when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's saying, get behind me, the one who accuses. To accuse is to constantly raise questions in people's minds around who they are, their identity, around who God is and the promises of God. To accuse is to constantly want to put the believer into a place where they're living their life constantly feeling that they are on trial. That's what he does 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we're going to unpack what he does and we're going to unpack a strategy of this is how I fight my battles against the accuser. Because uh, we are more than conquerors and uh, we are able to overcome this and we're actually able to live in a place where we live in the liberty, freedom, and the wonder of saying, you know what, there's something amazingly right with me because of who I am in Christ and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The accuser could be described as he is an emotional bully. That's what he does. He's an emotional bully and he's like a really, really, really harsh, critical parent who is constantly scolding telling off and pointing out faults. His accusations can be described as feeling constantly like you are being stabbed again and again and again. He's an inner critic, an inner voice that doesn't treat you kindly and doesn't treat you well. He's constantly pointing out your faults and he's constantly pointing out your shortfallings, and he's over-strict and incredibly severe. The accuser finds no pleasure in process and steady steps. He finds no pleasure in those things and only wants absolute perfection. He, He does not celebrate, as it were, the toddler's first steps, but points out that by now you should be running. And if he begins to run, points out that you should be winning a gold. Nothing's ever good enough. He will say things like, you are not good enough, you are not special enough, you are not smart enough, you are not spiritual enough, you have failed to measure up to some ideal. He never ever speaks to improve you. He never ever speaks to mature you. He never ever tells you how to overcome your faults and what you can do. He only speaks to bring a stab, an accusation, to put you again on trial. That's the only thing he ever wants to do. Now, it's a valid question with God to ask, God, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to mature? Um, It's a valid thing, like we were learning last week, I trust Trust in the Lord with all your heart and he's going to lead you, he's going to direct you, he's going to keep you on track. He's going to bring where he needs to the kindness of a rebuke, the kindness of discipline that causes us to grow, mature and increase. It's okay to to ask God, is there anything, Holy Spirit, that you want to point out? Is there anything you want to lead me on and direct me on? But it's also true that the most miserable people are the most self-aware people. The most miserable people on the planet are the most self-aware 
people. It's interesting that in Japan, um, there's a practice that they, they use to help people overcome depression. I think it's called the Morita theory, and which people with depression come and they do gardening for six months. And they're not allowed to talk about their problems, their past, their history, their failings or their shortcomings for six months. They just garden and look after plants. And they've found it's a powerful means to overcome depression. Because neurological suffering is often found in an, an obsession on self, on trying to fix yourself, improve yourself. It's a great thing to have a sensitivity towards God. It's a great thing to have a sensitivity where the psalmist says, I am led by your eye. It's an incredible, great thing that God can just look at you and you know actually what I said there wasn't helpful. Or what I felt there wasn't helpful. Sorry, Father, that wasn't good. It's a great thing to be led by his eye. It's a great thing to be easily correctable. It's a great, great asset and strength. But over-sensitivity can also become a playground for stabbing accusation. It can become a playground for stabbing accusation. Have you ever had a, a fire alarm that just goes off all the time? It's faulty and it just gets triggered all the time. And maybe it's overly sensitive. <laughs> There's a little bit of steam comes from the kitchen and it blasts all the fire alarms in the whole house. And you think, wow, there must be a raging fire here. And that's what the accuser wants to produce. He wants to produce a faulty fire alarm in your conscience. He wants to create hypersensitivity in your conscience. And so we've said, yes, sensitivity for for God is a great thing. But hypersensitivity, where an alarm constantly goes off with a harsh, scolding, stabbing, critical voice, is not God, doesn't come from God. He wants to give false warnings he wants to give false warnings to you that are not really true about you. He will say, oh, the reason for your frustration is there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Let me show you what's wrong with you. Let me point out what's wrong with you. He wants the believer to live with this overly careful timidity, a terror of making a mistake. He wants the person, the believer, to constantly live feeling my life is always under examination. And that God is always looking at my life and finding fault where I need to grow. He masquerades as the Holy Spirit. He pretends to come for your comfort and your growth and your maturity. He makes the believer constantly tense and alert, and overly vigilant, constantly looking inwards, and often leaves people feeling heavy, confused, crushed, or despairing, because often his accusation is non-specific. The voice of God is specific. He will come and say, specifically what you did there or didn't do there or said there, that was not right. Or that thing you needed to do that you didn't do, that, that's not good, child, son or daughter. 
But this accusatory voice often is foggy, chaotic, and non-specific thoughts. He will just say, there's something profoundly wrong with you, but then leave it at that. So the person lives constantly under a sense of despair and hopelessness. He wants to produce a kind of worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to change. He doesn't want genuine repentance, which is I change my mind and my behaviour and my practice. He just wants a sense of worldly sorrow. I'm just not acceptable. I'm just not good enough, smart enough, spiritual enough. My prayers aren't sophisticated enough. He wants the believer to lose all their confidence, their resolve and their strength. That anything that takes away your confidence before God is actually a highly dangerous thing. And it's not the source from God. We can find Jesus gets accused of evil nine times in the gospel. An accusation never came to Jesus to improve Jesus. Because Jesus is, was absolutely, categorically perfect. He's the God-man. He was And is perfect in all his thoughts, words, deeds, actions, activities, motivations, perspective. Everything that Jesus did was absolutely perfect. But he was accused nine times. And Jesus was perfect. Accusation does not come from God to improve you, mature you, or change you, or lead you to repentance. It doesn't. It just feeds into this. 50,000 thoughts, 95% of them negative. His goal in accusation is this. He wants to get the believer back in court. That's his, he accuses before God, it says. His number one priority is to get the believer back into the law court. That's where he wants the believer to live their life. So all his his accusations, his stabbing, his criticism, his scolding is all because he wants to get the believer into a position and posture where they think they have to argue their own case before God. That's his whole technique. And if he can get the believer into court, he can basically cut them off from having a life that's full of life, that a life might overflow. Once in court, his goal is he wants you on your feet. He wants you being your own advocate, your own lawyer, your own solicitor. That's his goal. He accuses to get you back into court. Then once in court, he wants you on your feet. He wants you collecting evidence for yourself for your defence against the prosecution. It's his whole goal, to distract you, to steal your confidence, and to take you away from the real calling, which is to love Jesus and further his kingdom. Instead, he wraps the believer up into a perpetual court case where they never ever feel that they're winning. He wants you up on your feet. He wants you justifying yourself. He wants you to collect evidence that maybe you can blame somebody else. You can say, the reason this is going on, Your Honour, is because of the world around me, my circumstances, people in my life, and the problems. I'm going to blame everything else, and I'm actually powerless in all this, 
because it's the things around me. Or he wants you condemning yourself. He wants you beating yourself up. He wants you devaluing yourself. He wants you feeling there's something profoundly wrong about you and that you are in fact unacceptable both to God and to people. Some days you feel you're winning the case. He drags you into court and he wakes you up and reminds you of the day before and you're able to stand your honour. I've done a great thing yesterday. I was radical in my finances and generosity and kindness and I forgave. I'm not guilty today. And another day he comes and speaks and says, actually, I want to remind you of yesterday. <laughs> I want to remind you of what you didn't do. Ah, what you didn't say. Uh, and then he'll say things like, I bet you're feeling good about yourself. Yeah, I'm feeling good about myself. I bet you're feeling proud about yourself. Yeah, I'm feeling proud. Got you. Got you on pride. Guilty. <laughs> so sometimes we feel we're winning and sometimes we feel we're losing. We are... At this point, to be secure in good news and apply gospel reality. This requires us to practice self-denial. It requires us to say, I will not go into court. Amen. He is a highly skilled prosecutor and I can't beat him in a one-on-one prosecution. Hallelujah. Sometimes there are lies he speaks, sometimes he twists truth. Sometimes he just tells the truth where we have failed. Sometimes he'll use scripture against us to condemn us and punish us. But our greatest weapon is the gospel, the blood of Jesus, the finished work of the cross. The fact that he went for us, as us, into that courtroom. That somebody did go into the courtroom for us. Somebody was accused for us of things he never did for said that Jesus went to a court where he was accused of awful terrible things and he was punished in our place and so it's safe for us to say I will not go back into court I will not go to court because the court case has been adjourned and someone else was convicted and punished for me, as me, in my place. I don't have to justify myself because there is one who has been punished for me and that I've received his righteousness and his justification and now I don't ever need to go back into court again. And so it's actually safe to dismiss all accusations and all self-justification. And find that in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I don't really care about what you think, talking to the Corinthians. And then he says, actually, my conscience is clear. But you know what? It doesn't mean I've got everything right. I don't really care what I think either. I only care what God thinks. I only look to have his opinion. So accusation, this is important, because one of the lies he'll say to you is, Accusation is a safety mechanism from God. It's to lead you, guide you, direct you and keep you on track. We're going to learn as we go through this that actually accusation is not a safety mechanism from God. You can, with all security, dismiss all accusation. You can dismiss all harsh critical voices. You can dismiss 
all stabbing effects in your conscience. The accuser is not your friend. (laughs) He is not your friend. He is not your coach. He's not your leader. He's not your comforter. He's not your teacher. He is not God. (coughs) That's not God's voice. That's one of the great lies he's told the believer is, the voice that you hear that is stabbing and scolding and harsh and critical and not kind The lie, he says, is that's the Father. That's Holy Spirit, he lies and says. It's Holy Spirit who just wants to guard you, protect you. The accuser is an enemy spy. He's a double agent. He pretends he works for God, but actually he's a double agent who has another agenda. And... His technique is to feed the believer false information and false intelligence and false identity. That's what he's doing all the time. He seeks to convince us that the root cause in your life is there's something always wrong with you. And to close then, we need to judge every thought, everything we think in our head by the fruit that it's producing. We need to judge every thought we have by is it producing joy? Is it producing hope? Is it producing kindness? Is it producing faithfulness? Is it producing good fruit? In our lives, and we need to become familiar with the tone of voice that God speaks to when He speaks to the child that He loves. We need to come and be shaped by how does the Father speak? And maybe we've had parental voices in our lives or or, or teachers in our life who are harsh, who are critical, who are scolding and stabbing. And we've then taken that and said that must be how God speaks. That he's never quite happy. He's always a little ticked off. He's always a bit frustrated. He always wants to scold me, criticise me, point out where I'm not doing well. That he's always unhappy with my progress. That's not the voice of God. That's not how God speaks. So there needs to be, at this point, a decision to say, I'm going to learn the voice and the tone of God. I'm going to say, that isn't how you are. You're clear, you're precise, you lovingly correct me, but you're not always dragging me back into court to accuse me and point out my failures. We need to repent of where we believe the lie. That's how God speaks. Jesus said that when Satan speaks, he lies. He twists. He uses scripture against us. He uses the Bible unlawfully. When he lies, he speaks his native language. 
And so sometimes people have lived under a heavy cloud of condemnation and hopelessness. And the root has been, they've been listening to the wrong voice. Saviors don't accuse. Saviors save. It's what they do. That when he speaks, there's life, there's liberty, there's freedom attached to his voice. Yes. He, his voice, his words have spirit to them. They, they've got life to them, Holy Spirit in them. And even when he does correct, we are actually left motivated. Mm. We say, ah, oh, that is a better way. Amen. That is a better way. That works. I'm going to agree with you. Godly sorrow leads us to change our minds. He speaks to convince us there's something absolutely, amazingly right with you. Mm. 